It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, the data editor, and today I'm joined by Ludwig Siegela, our technology editor, and Jason Palmer, our science correspondent. In this episode, we'll discuss the end of the Bitcoin civil war and how seeing around corners might just be around the corner. First, Ludwig, let's start with you. You've just returned from Hong Kong where you were at a peace negotiation conference of sorts for the Bitcoin currency and blockchain. Tell us what was going on. So perhaps a bit of background. Bitcoin keeps growing, even though the price of Bitcoin is is much lower now than it was like two years ago. So it keeps growing, more transactions, more people use it. But the problem here is that the capacity of the Bitcoin system is limited. It only can handle seven transactions per second. And that compares to several hundred, for example, for Visa in, in the US. So it's very limited. And so you can change that by tweaking it technically, but the developers of the Bitcoin system couldn't agree. So in summer, two of them kind of uh, said, we can't take this anymore. We have to do something. Otherwise, the system is going to blow up. People won't use it anymore. And they basically called for a referendum and put out a new Bitcoin software called the miners, kind of the people that provide the security and mid Bitcoin to adopt this new software. And this risked forking the blockchain, for so to speak? Yes. I mean, of course, it, was, uh, it triggered lots of mudslinging and, and personal attacks. Uh, but I mean, the threat was that if a substantial percentage of the miners would implement the new software, you would end up with two different types of Bitcoin. Okay. Jason. Can I, can I just come in there? I'm, I'm a little unclear why this would be such a personal matter. Why the mudslinging? Why the angst? Coders, programmers, kind of uh, a consensus doesn't come easily to them. They think differently about what Bitcoin is. I mean, for example, one difference is one camp thinks it shouldn't be changed. It should be like gold. The other camp thinks, no, it's kind of more living thing. It should be adapted and the user should decide uh, how to change it. So hence, the second camp says we need to increase the block size, make more room for more transactions. Whereas the other camp says, no, we can't change it. It's kind of like a big plane in midair. We can't change it easily. But there's also, I guess, technical considerations in which there's trade-offs by increasing this average size or the maximum size of the block. You can actually get more transactions, but there's probably a question of latency. So, so what you have to see is that, I mean, it gets very technical, but I mean, the thing is, if you increase the size of the blocks, that helps you with the number of transactions, but it also makes the system slower in a way or disadvantages certain parts of the system, for example, miners in China. So most most of the Bitcoin today, two-thirds in fact, is mined, so it's minted in China. And these guys are behind the Great Firewall, kind of this censorship filter built by the Chinese government to kind of control the internet there. And so whatever you change kind of may disadvantage Chinese miners so they're not happy. So it, it gets all very complicated, but also very interesting because it's kind of this mixture of politics, economics, and technology. Okay. So I want to know what happened at the Hong Kong conference in terms of what the resolution was. But before we do that, explain to our listeners what is a block when we talk about the blockchain of Bitcoin. So, so when you send money, you want to send Bitcoin to somebody else, these transactions don't get kind of baked into the system right away, but they kind of exist in some limbo state and have to be verified and encoded by 
computers, and that's what the miners do. And when they do that and are successful in doing that, they get rewarded with some money, and that's how you issue new Bitcoin. Got it. So Hong Kong, what happened? So in summer, there was this big mudslinging, and people were afraid, and so some people got together and said, we need to organize these uh, peace conferences. Actually, that had already had happened before because people saw it coming. The, that Bitcoin civil war. And so these conferences were organized. One was in Montreal in September, one now in Hong Kong. And the idea was just to get a lot of people into the room so they could talk about it, kind of resolve misunderstandings, uh, get to know each other more. And that's what happened in Hong Kong. Two days of highly technical talks, lots of socializing and long debate. And the outcome is that basically there will be an increase of the block size in some ways. How it's going to be done is not clear yet. But they found a solution and kind of the threat of the system splitting up is now remote. That said, the whole thing was helped, of course, that the renegade developers who wanted Bitcoin to move forward more quickly, they didn't show up. And they kind of have exited. Uh, uh, they've come kind of stop fighting the Bitcoin war. Why do you think they've not shown up and why do you think they've stopped? Because the solution they proposed, uh, which was called Bitcoin XT, which is the new Bitcoin software, was not adopted by the miners. And again, Chinese miners, they decided this is too dangerous. We don't want to go with something we don't know. We just stick with what we know. And that's a political problem developers can solve. I mean, even if the software is better, which you can talk at length about, it was not accepted. And so they basically gave up. Now, the organizer of the Hong Kong conference was Pindar Wong, who was a former director of ICANN, the system and the process that runs the domain name system. Do you think that this is the beginning of a new international technical body, technical institution to govern Bitcoin? That may well be the case. I mean, the Bitcoin civil war has ended, but the main issue has not been solved. Is the Bitcoin system going to change and who is going to make that decision? And if you accept changes to the Bitcoin system, then you have to come up with a workable process of making those decisions. Like in the same way, ICANN or internet government's bodies have to make a decision of which internet addresses to add and all that. And so I think Yes, it is probably a first step toward kind of an ICANN-like solution for Bitcoin if that system survives. Ludwig, nature doesn't like monopolies and diversity allows us to experiment. It's kind of weird that we have one domain name system and one internet. There's a lot of benefits to that. There might be drawbacks that we don't see. Bitcoin is similar. There's a great benefit in having a single digital currency, but the world is a messy place and typically doesn't look like that. Do you think it would be optimal to have multiple currencies and that we fragment this? Or do you think both, whether it be the internet or the Bitcoin and the blockchain, or do you think you should have a unitary system? That is the big decision, whether you want to have kind of one blockchain system, which kind of covers everything, not just sending Bitcoin around, but kind of running applications on top of it, it becoming kind of this global database or this global trust machine. If that's the case, you probably need a governance body. You probably need somebody to decide if we change the system, how do we change it? If we're going to move into a world where you have Bitcoin and perhaps then you have other alternative uh, cryptocurrencies and other similar technologies that kind of work together. You may not need that type of type of ICANN-like governance bodies. That said, I mean, the thing is always, like with the internet, the more decentralized you make something, the more centralized one part of the system becomes. And that's kind of the naming system, the address system in the case of the internet. And I think it's it may be the block size in the case of Bitcoin. That's a really good point. We just change where the chokehold is, but there's always going to be a gatekeeper and chokehold somewhere. Great. Thank you very much, Ludwig. Thank you, Ken. Jason, let's turn to you. Seeing around corners... What 
How is that possible? Well, lots of people have been trying to do similar things for a number of years now. Largely, all of these techniques work on the same principle as LIDAR, which is the sort of light equivalent of radar, which is you send out some light pulses, you bounce them off your sort of target, you measure how long it takes for them to come back, and then you figure out how far away something is. If you do this at high enough resolution, you can actually kind of build up a picture of, of what that thing is. How do you do this around a corner? Well, this is, this is a lot more difficult. For the most part, these techniques kind of rely on you shine a laser at, let's say, a wall that's past the corner, and then some of those photons bounce off the wall and hit the object, and some of those photons that hit the object come back to the wall, and some of those that hit the wall come back to the camera. You're down to a very, very, very small number of these photons. But detector technology kind of always coming along, and you end up getting a picture, kind of one photon, a few photons at a time. It's slow, it's laborious, but it can be done. Okay, Ludwig. So, so, so why would I do this, actually? I mean, what, what's the purpose? I mean, I remember being in Israel, and, and somebody told me that the Israeli military or some Israeli companies working on, on a similar technology. I mean, is it basically a great weapon in guerrilla warfare? Well, I mean, absolutely. It's the sort of modern-day periscope, if you like, so you can see out of the trench. And certainly there are plenty of military applications. But you can imagine, for instance, uh, having a system that does the same thing mounted on the front of your car, so you know before you turn a corner what obstacles might be there and so on. So there are certainly plenty of civilian applications applications too. And, it, and there's, there's no doubt that there is military interest and research to some degree kind of all over the place. But what's been going on more in the academic sphere has been, I have to say, kind of not all that impressive. The scanning that you have to do, given that you're gathering just a few photons and that you're trying to then, on the basis of when these things showed up, kind of use an algorithm to kind of unpick what they must have bounced off of and so on, these things can take minutes to scan and to unpick. But isn't that just a question of time? Digital technology, the progress is rather predictable, even though Moore's law is kind of slowing down, but you could imagine that given enough computing power and, and experience and tweaking the system in 10 years, yep. it, that's going to be possible. Interesting you should say exactly this. Uh, so there, there are two questions here. One is is about the algorithms and how quickly you can unpick what's come back through. But also you can kind of turn that question on its head. How much detail do you need? So what I've been looking into this week is some work from Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh where they kind of reduce the requirement of detail. They just want to be able to track motion, principally about motion. You get a rough idea of what's there without you know necessarily knowing fine detail of what's there and then take a picture as quickly as you can, then take the next picture as quickly as you can and you can see how far it may have moved. So that's the sort of speeding up the computational business is don't worry too much about detail. But really the star of the show, as far as I can tell, is a, a different kind of detector, that the likes of which has been extremely expensive, very rarefied research kind of kit, which is, thanks to the kinds of semiconductor advances you're talking about, becoming kind of more widely available. And so what is the new inventive stuff? Well, these, these researchers have used what's called a single photon avalanche diode, SPAD, if you like, S-P-A-D. Like the name implies, it can reliably click exactly one photon at a time. And I don't know if you know how hard this is to do, how many trillions, squillions of photons are bouncing around us right now. But to be able to catch one and to time it and to know how long after the laser pulse went out that it came back is astonishing stuff. These things have existed before, but they came in one, you know, kind of like, a, you know, the first CCDs were just kind of one pixel. And now we have, you know, millions in the detectors in our phones that cost about a buck, right? These things are kind of following along the same path. These researchers used an array that's sort of 32 pixels on a side. It's a primitive camera, but it's an affordable one. And like everything else that comes on a chip, it's getting cheaper, faster. Okay, so we know in military technology that we have bullets that can go around corners. 
Now you're saying that we are able to see around the corners. Yeah, there was a, a story about these sort of smart bullets just a couple of weeks ago. It's kind of funny that we've developed the ability to get a bullet around a corner before we know what's there. <laughs> so when do you expect that we will be able to have this technology in everyday life? Well, a uh, usual story with research kit that makes it to market. It's about how much you can convince somebody who makes these things that the demand will be there. These things are, you know, precision fabricated in the same kind of fabs that, you know, you make chips in, that you make CCDs in and so on. The demand, I should think, would be quite high for things like the automotive application. For the moment, it's still a research piece of kit, but based on what was around just a few years ago and what you'd pay for that, the progress is strong. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Jason. And thank you, Ludwig. Now, to you, the listener, we'd like you to be a part of the conversation as well. You can find us on Twitter at EconSciTech and on Facebook at the page of The Economist. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.